in week one of this series, we talked about how the Bible came to be. And I encourage you, there's, it's an hour-long uh, message on that subject, and it could have been many, many more hours. But in week one, we talked about our, uh, how the Bible came to be. Last week, we zeroed in on this complex concept of inspiration, what it means to be God-breathed, whether God breathed into the Scripture or God breathed out the truth that He gave to us. Uh, there's a lot in, entailed in inspiration. And this week, what we're going to do is we're going to take a hard look at the Bible as an authority. Uh, and when I say a hard look, I mean a hard look. I mean some of the things that I'm going to share today, some of the concepts that I probably will uh, put in your head today might bother you or might upset you or cause you to have questions. Uh, obviously, my encouragement to you is wait till the end of the message. I'm sure you will understand what it is that I'm trying to say. And even if you don't, it's okay. It could be... Uh, Poor communication. So if you have questions on this particular message, I encourage you to reach out to me throughout the week. So we're going to talk about the Bible as an authority. After all, the logic is this. If the Bible is inspired, then it should have some authority in our life, right? Especially uh, who it's inspired by, right? The, the Lord of glory. So um, here's, here, though, is where the, the debate starts. How precisely is the Bible an authority, and how do we live under that authority? That's a question you should always be asking. How precisely is the Bible an authority, and how do we live under such authority? Is the Bible equally authoritative and therefore prescriptive in all of its parts? It's an important question to ask. Uh, we're going to get into prescription versus description a little bit today. Uh, how do we separate, if, the, if this is complex, how do we separate God's authority, biblical authority, and even the authority of those who interpret the Bible? How many of you know, and I'll repeat this a couple of times a day, the Bible itself tells us that we need to rightly divide it. The Bible itself tells us that we need to rightly divide it. If it was rightly divided, packaged, and perfect for you as it is, uh, I don't think that there would be too much, uh, too much dividing necessary. But because the Bible is complex, because it is from a different time, there is a lot that we have to weed through, a lot that we have to sort through. So we're going to talk about that authority. Many Christians believe that the fundamental concern uh, when debating Bible issues is the, the debate about inspiration and inerrancy, but that honestly is not the case. Uh, very few groups actually outright reject the concept of inspiration and inerrancy. Very few groups. Now, the ones that do really reject it, <laughs> but very few actually outright reject this idea. The real problem comes down to, and this is where the debates reside and where the arguments in the church come from, the real debate is whether or not the Bible is authoritative. On one side, we have people who believe that the scripture is completely and utterly negotiable. That is, every word on every page it's up for grabs, okay? Or it's subject to your own interpretation. On the other hand, we have those who kind of advocate for what has been called a paper pope, right? Uh, some who believe in the Trinity will get this joke. It's either the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, or some people believe the Father, the Son, and the Holy Scripture, right? And so there's two sides to this. And yet, 
Even these sides aren't consistent. And it doesn't matter which side you gravitate towards. I can assure you, you are not consistent in your ideas either. On the negotiable side, the Bible becomes authoritative only, only when it confirms or agrees with certain viewpoints, usually political viewpoints, that that people like this hold. So treatment of the poor, views on money, ideas of immigration, all of this stuff. All of a sudden, the Bible that's completely subjective and up for grabs is absolutely definitive, and you're not being a good Jesus follower unless you believe in political cause A. Meanwhile, in the paper pope side of things, the Bible is authoritative until it confronts your particular uh, issues, i.e. paying your taxes, submitting to the governing authorities, or usually infringing on your American freedoms. <laughs> I know you guys love me already. Okay, so, so the idea is, does the Bible have authority? Maybe, maybe we feel that we don't fall into either of these extremes, but the truth remains that each one of us negotiates the line of biblical authority inside of our lives. I doubt any woman in this church right now uh, calls her husband master. And the Bible says to do it. This is awesome. Barney, do you call her master? What were you raising your hand for? I'm not even sure. Okay, so I doubt that any women in this church call their husband master. And I didn't see anybody in this church giving each other holy kisses this morning. And I'm glad, because <laughs> you ain't doing it, okay? So if I have a report of you giving somebody a holy kiss, I will call you out on it. Anyway, so, so the point, uh, in tongue-in-cheek, the point is, is that we, we see that the Bible says certain things, and yet we go, eh, that's not exactly for us. Again, this is not an erosion of belief in inerrancy or inspiration, it's not, no matter how many people will point the finger and pick on whoever it is. The, the issue is actually authority. It always will be authority because the Bible is supposed to have authority in our life. But again, how much? The late John Stott rightly said this. He said, the hallmark of authentic evangelicalism is not subscription, but submission. Now, what in the world does that mean? He goes on, he says, that is, it is not whether we subscribe to an impeccable formula about the Bible. This is why, as a pastor, I'm not a giant fan of creeds and confessions. I am not saying that they have no place in the church. I am saying that you ought to be careful because just because you recite a proper creed and confession doesn't mean for a second you actually obey the Bible. It just means that you talk a good game. And most Christians are really good at that, right? So John Stott says, that is, it is not whether we subscribe to an impeccable formula about the Bible, but whether we live in practical submission to what the Bible teaches. And this is a huge one. I'm going to come back to it in a little bit. Including an advanced resolve to submit to whatever it may later be shown to teach. See, we don't actually understand the Bible in its fullness. I hope you know that. Uh, and we are discovering it and understanding it each and every day. But we have to have that advanced resolve to say it is going to teach us truth. As we read last week, 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17 says this, All scripture is inspired by God. Theopneustos, right? Whether that's breathed in or breathed out, it's irrelevant. The point here is that it is profitable for teaching. God has given it and it is profitable for something. Teaching, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness. But why? 
Why? So that, the scripture goes on to say, the man or the woman of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. Did you see what I just did there? I interpreted the Bible for our audience because it is for every man and every woman of God. But it's written a certain way, right? I hope you notice that these things happen all the time. The Bible is, is given to us so that it equips us, so that, again, we may be adequate, that is, fit for the job. It doesn't say it's given to you so that you'll be the best Christian the world has ever seen. It, it means you'll be able to do the job that God has called you to. And that job is good works. The Apostle Paul, who taught Timothy those truths, also taught the, t the church where Timothy was pastoring. He said these words in Ephesians 2.10. We Christians are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus, say it with me, church, for good works. It should be on the screen. For good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. So, if we're created for good works and the scriptures are profitable for equipping us to that work, then it only follows that the scriptures have some authority in our life. If the Bible is an authority in the lives of Christians, how do we live then in submission to that authority? Again, the, the questions that we need to be asking at all times, is each part of the Bible equal in its authority to the next part uh, and as such, meant to be equally uh, obeyed. The Bible, to, uh, the answer to this question regarding the Bible is that it's not as easy as you think. It's not as easy as you think. And uh, I'm going to point out something very important here in a second, but uh, I want us all to realize that this is what gives uh, credence to the series that we did not too long ago, Paul, Women, and Wives. The reason why we need to understand what the Bible says concerning women and concerning ministry and concerning leadership is not so that we can hold to a particular political leaning or particular idea. The reason why we need that is because it is not as clear as people think it is. Can I get an amen? Do, do you know that the Bible actually says women must remain silent in the churches? If you took that as just point blank what it says... Half our population needs to be quiet. That's weird, though, because just a couple of chapters before, the same Bible, the same author, said that women, if they're going to prophesy, which requires talking, should do so in a certain manner. Right? We have to interpret the Bible rightly. And I've got a lot of uh, encouragement through that series. I caught a lot of flack through that series, rightly. I mean, as you would expect, right? But the problem that we're facing is how do we interpret the Bible? And what is truth? And what is authoritative? And how do we arrive at these ideas? Michael F. Byrd mentions an old bumper sticker in his book, uh, one that you'll no doubt remember. I'll put it on the screen here. The bumper sticker reads, the Bible says it, I believe it, that settles it. How many of you saw those bumper stickers? How many of you may have had one? Just be honest. Just be honest. There we go. The Bible says it. I believe it, that settles it. Now, some of you might think that that sounds great, but guess what? In a ver this very sentiment is what troubles the skeptical world around us. But I'm going to add to that. It's this overtly simplistic sentiment that troubles me as a pastor. Okay, And let me show you why. So the Bible says it, 
you should believe it, and that should settle it, right? Okay, so what do we do with Deuteronomy 21, 10 through 14? This is where you're going to start to ask some deep questions of your faith. These are the words of God, by the way. When you go out to battle against your enemies, and the Lord your God delivers them into your hands, and you take them away captive, and see among the captives a beautiful woman, and have a desire for her, and would take her as a wife for yourself... Then you shall bring her home to your house, and she shall shave her head and trim her nails. She's got to be clean. She shall also remove the clothes of her captivity and shall remain in your house and mourn her father and mother a full month. By the way, mourning because they have just been killed. And after that, you may go into her. And anybody who knows Bible language knows exactly what is being referred to here. And you will be her husband, and she shall be your wife. It shall be, if you are not pleased with her, then, by the way, this is after you've already taken her captive and slept with her, then you shall let her go wherever she wishes. But you shall certainly not sell her for money. You shall not mistreat her because you have humbled her. The Bible says it. We should believe it. That settles it, right? Come on, Nathan. You know that this was an instruction given to a specific people at a specific time. Yes, it was. That hardly changes the morality of that command. Do you see that? Are you okay with it? Do you even remotely come close to understanding it? Many people don't, not even scholars. I'm going to mess with you a little bit more. What about Deuteronomy 22.11? You shall not wear a material mixed of wool and linen together. Crap. Exodus 23, 19. You shall bring the choice first fruits of your spoils into the house of the Lord your God. You are not to boil a young goat in the milk of its mother. Huh? What about Leviticus 19, 27? You shall not round off the side growth of your head, nor harm the edges of your beard. <laughs> Mark Ryan and Ryan don't care because they have no hair. Anyway, everyone in this room has violated the first, right? Everyone in this room has violated the first. You're all doing it right now, wearing mixed clothing, right? If you like Indian food, you violated the second, okay? And if you have a beard, man or woman, you have without doubt violated the third, okay? No comment there. But I, but, but I know exactly what you're thinking again. These, again, are issues that don't really matter or apply to us. And although you may be correct, do you have any idea why? And how do you know if it is true? Listen, this kind of debate, debate gets extremely serious. You want me to go ahead and throw a rock between your eyes? Let me do that. The pressing example that's in our culture today. How in the world do we reject these commands is not fitting for us? Or, for example, the command not to eat pork in Leviticus 11. <laughs> no more bacon. Well, we reject that outright, don't we? Right? But in the exact same book, we accept the prohibition against homosexuality written to the same people at the same time. You okay with it? Do you know why? Do you know why something is good and something is bad? I mean, after all, the Bible said it. We believe it. That settles it. You don't live according to that principle, no matter how much your bumper sticker shines on your car. Put yourself in the position of the unchurched for just a moment. 
Or maybe you've just been a person who asked these questions all your life, but you didn't feel like you could vocalize them in the church. If you read this material for the first time, would you think that the Bible is, one, a source for family values, or two, God's will to be obeyed at all times? Probably not, right? Hopefully not. That's not what we're supposed to be doing. The problem is that the Bible says that I believe that that settles it is an idea that oversimplifies everything, especially with regard to authority. And not one person in this room actually lives according to that. Now, at this point, you could say, well, the problem now, Nathan, is that the Bible is foreign, it's distant, it's weird, it sounds morally reprehensible, so, so it can't be authoritative at all. And many people do exactly that. How many of you know people do not like the Bible because of these truths, because of these things in there? How do we get out of obeying the stuff in the Bible that we find repulsive or irrelevant? Let me just share with you a couple of things that the culture does. Number one, option one, just dump the Old Testament in its entirety. Then most of the problems are gone. How many of you know only most of the problems are gone? Only most of the problems are gone. Jesus says some stuff that absolutely tip, tips you upside down, okay? So the reason why we can't do that is because Jesus and the apostles affirm the Old Testament. So, so much for Andy Stanley's divorce from the Old Testament. You can't do it. There's no way. Jesus and the apostles affirm it. The Old Testament is an essential component in our account of God and the Christian faith. How in the world do you know what Jesus fulfilled if you don't know the story that he was come to fulfill? Right? You can't know it. Option two, divide the Old Testament laws into civil, ceremonial, and moral components. A remnant of the Reformation, by the way. With the civil and ceremonial aspects fulfilled by Christ and the moral law, it's signified by the Ten Commandments, and it remains in full effect today. That's a pretty interesting way of getting around some of the strange stuff, but it's not going to work either. Why is that? Because to the Jew, the law was an absolute indissoluble unity. They didn't break it into these categories. It did not work that way. It can't be placed into artificial categories. Not to mention that when you actually start studying the New Testament, there's a whole lot of moral laws that extend past the Ten Commandments that are affirmed for us to live by. Oh, no. What do we do with all of this? Option three. Interpret the weird and disturbing parts of the Bible as allegory or spiritual. Ooh, right? That's what you do. It's just spiritual stuff. Again, no. The scriptures can have a deeper, uh, a deeper spiritual sense, right? We call this in Latin sensus planur, a fuller meaning, right? This is true at times, but often it is a cop-out for explaining away things that are just hard to deal with. This merely tries to avoid the problem, and as Michael F. Byrd calls it, uh, this is interpretive sleight of hand. Option four, give up on any notion of authority and just use the Bible as needed for your pet causes, like we talked about at the beginning. Immigration, finances, how to treat the poor. Why would that be any good, though? At best, it's just your opinion, amen? At best, it's just your opinion. Although that is an attractive and easy option and one held by a great many people in our world today, uh, the scripture is clear. God's word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. It can't be a subjective lamp and a subjective light. It just can't. So what are we to do? 
This sounds exhausting, doesn't it? It should sound exhausting. Because at the second you get exhausted, you start to look for actual answers. This is, this is why I like trouble or challenges or problems in life. I'm not saying that I, I want those more than the easy road at times. I'm simply saying when challenges hit me, I look for answers. What happens largely in the culture is when challenge hits, we look for traditional solutions to those answers that might not actually be answers. And we stick our heads in the sand further and further and further and further. But what we need to do when we get to these hard issues is we need to realize we better come up with an answer. We better find what the truth is. Because if we're not going to find the truth, the world is going to continue to be skeptical of us. And the, and the world is going to continue to laugh at you no matter how much you say, I just have a wonderful relationship with Jesus. They don't care. Okay? So what is the answer? Well, we need to sufficiently grasp how biblical authority works, especially when dealing with the more problematic parts of the Bible. And we're going to do that by, a way, by way of sound, tried, and tested hermeneutics or interpretive methods. Sound, tried, and tested methods of interpreting the Bible. Four governing ideas for you to write down. So if you're a note taker, I'll leave this up on the screen for a little while. I want you to write it down. Number one, distinguish between what is prescriptive and descriptive. This requires that we accept that some of, some if not many, biblical commands are just not applicable to us. So you can write that down as I continue on, but it's going to be on the screen. Distinguish between what is prescriptive and descriptive. This requires that we accept that some, if not many, biblical commands are just not applicable to us. This is no small task. As we wrestled with above, uh, we can't simply pick and choose between things. We, we can't also allow what feels right to determine the Bible's authority. In that case, we end up with all of the confusion that we already have. This is going to devolve into subjective chaos. What about, uh, what about when, Nathan, what about when obeying is a subjective matter based on individual conscience, i.e. things like drinking alcohol or eating certain foods or even enlisting in the military if you find this in the scripture? What about those situations? Those situations are left to be subjective. They are to be based on your conscience. And the scripture is very clear. It gives a principle that governs it. It says if it's sin to you, don't do it. Right? If, if, something is your, if something is for you to walk by faith, then you walk by faith. Do you understand those things? So there are decisions that we have, but then there are these many other things and we need to know what happens. What about when the text in question is applicable in most, but not all situations? A best practice type of scenario. What about the Bible telling us that women will be saved through childbearing? Does that mean non-childbearing women aren't saved? No, of course not. Right? There is something to be understood there, and we need to dive in and figure it out. The answer is that determining what is descriptive versus prescriptive, and even what makes for best practices, is itself a sound hermeneutic. So you have to look at something and you say, is this passage of Scripture describing something to me, what God said to a certain people, or is this a passage that is prescribing something for all uh, humanity, for all of time? The Bible itself, again, tells us to rightly divide it. 
So two great methods for getting to this place. Number one, allow the Bible to interpret the Bible. The same passage in Leviticus that tells us, uh, that tells us to abstain from eating pork, uh, or the Jew from uh, abstaining from eating pork, is also the passage that gives the prohibition uh, and the violation of homosexuality. But when you allow the Bible to interpret the Bible, you understand that there is a principle throughout all the pages of Scripture, that there is a sexual ethic that God is approving of. There are many parts of the sexual ethic that we have determined that have no bearing in the Bible. They're just Western sensibilities, modern ideas. But when we talk about things like homosexuality, whether you like it or not, there is a universal command uh, to not participate in this sexual ethic. Okay? So why is it that we uh, are eating bacon, but we still adhere to, we believe that homosexuality is a sin? Why is that the case? Because we allow the Bible to interpret the Bible. And as you walk through the New Testament, you can see these truths being reaffirmed. So the Bible must interpret the Bible. And the second uh, principle for this hermeneutical method is to allow the decisions of the historic church to weigh into our decisions, okay? The decisions of the historic church should weigh in. Why? Because those same people were reading your Bible and trying to figure it out. Do you understand that? And so when we see that in the second century, the church fathers would say the same thing that we're saying 2,000 years removed, we have it on good authority that this was a commonly held idea that the Bible was authoritative in a particular area. So again, with sexual ethics, what do we conclude when we look at both the Old Testament and the New Testament? What do we conclude when we look at what old, uh, the, the ancient church rendered as a judgment? Does God change his view on things? That's what we should be asking. And the answer is not as simple as no, he doesn't. And the answer is not as simple as yes, he does, because he doesn't and does. It's it's a matter of time. It's a matter of what was happening uh, in that particular situation. Next, we should look again at the church historically. And I want you to understand something very important. Tradition is not allowed to rise to equal standing with inspired scripture. But it should not be ignored. It should not be ignored. We can't just go, what did those guys know? They walk with Jesus. I, I don't know. But it seems like they knew something that we don't know. Maybe, just maybe, okay? So those are two principles. Acts 15, 19 through 21 is a good case study for this. I'll put the scripture on the screen. Acts 15, 19 through 21. Therefore, it is my judgment that we do not trouble those who are turning to God from among the Gentiles, but that we write to them that they abstain from things contaminated by idols and from fornication and from what is strangled and from blood. For Moses, this is an amazing insight into even the Gentile world. For Moses from ancient generations has in every city those who preach him since he is read in the synagogues every Sabbath. So somebody knew what Moses had been talking about or what we understand as the law, right, the, the, um, the three components of the Bible that we talked about in week one, right? So it sounds like an odd ruling, though, if you look at it. You've got four don'ts here, right? Don't eat uh, food contaminated by idols. Uh, 
stay away from fornication, stay away from things that are strangled, and don't consume blood. Okay, uh, the verdict had everything to do in the context. It had everything to do with the practice of idolatry and idol worship and foreign or pagan gods, right? And so the practices that were prohibited here had direct correlation to those things. The Gentile believers were to abstain from even sexual deviancy and food associated with idol worship. There were temple prostitutes and all of these other things that were going on in different times in human history. So with respect to the blood issue, all of a sudden people get there and they say, God says don't consume blood. It's authoritative. It's for all generations. So much for a medium rare steak, right? Do you know that even when you cook that steak really, really well done, you're still consuming blood? You just call it the juice of the steak, right? You just, you just cooked it down to a better color or something. God has no problem with the consumption of blood, but if it has to do with an idolatrous practice, there is a huge problem. Do you get it? Interpretation matters inside of all of these situations. So it, all of these situations. So if there's a pagan ritual attached, we've got to be careful. I hope you guys know that this is why, again, it's so important that we go back to the drawing board and talk about things like women in ministry or whatever it is. And again, back to another principle that I shared last week with the Dunning-Kruger effect. If you think, as you sit there, high and mighty as we often find ourselves to be, like, you don't understand this. I'm the one who has it. I'm the arbiter of all truth. I'm just telling you that pride's not going to get you very far when it comes to interpreting the Bible. And it's probably going to land you in a very bad conversation with the world, leaving you not able to minister to those who are skeptical and doubtful of the things that we proclaim. I've learned this the hard way in over 20 years of ministry. You have to come to the scripture uh, anew every time. You should come to the scripture as though you don't know what in the world it says every time you read it. You know why you should do that? Because if what you already believe is true, you'll come to the same conclusion and you have nothing to lose. But if you're wrong, you'll actually get smarter. And you'll learn something about what God's word is saying. Too many of us have a vested interest in defending our traditions or our way of being taught or whatever it might be. And we've got to be very careful with this. So, again, principle number one is that we have to distinguish between what is prescriptive and descriptive. It was descriptive for them to abstain from blood in a certain position, unless we're talking about an idolatrous practice. And then I would say you probably ought to be careful even to this day, right? Paul offers some odd rulings on that when he says, if you can do this with a clear conscience, go ahead. So it screws the whole thing up even more. Yay for us, right? Second principle, recognize that the Bible often deals with brutal realities and not ideal situations. How many of you loved that Deuteronomy passage about uh, pillaging and sacking a town and taking extra wives? No hands? No hands? This is weird. Oh, Ryan raised his hand. Okay. Karen, you're going to have to do something about that. Anyway, so, so, do what? That's why you don't call him master. I love this. This is really good, right? This is, yes, she's got it. Okay, so we have to recognize these truths uh, for what they are. The Bible deals with brutal realities and not ideal situations. 
I want you to get this in your head, and it's just something that I've been ruminating on all, uh, all week, and that is that God is in the business of redeeming, not restarting. God is in the business of redeeming, not restarting. Even with the flood, God didn't fully restart. God is in the business of redeeming and not restarting. If it is as simple as restarting, you just hit reset, tell everybody exactly what they do, and get on with it, right? And we'd screw that up too, right? But instead, it's redeeming. So although God could choose to do whatever it is that he wants, we are looking to his character as a whole. We already know that the God of the flood is a God of justice, and he destroys a wicked creation. But we also know that God has never waved a magic wand to put all things to rights. What's the point? God is again working within a fallen world. Okay, He is again redeeming and not restarting, which is a messy, a messy business necessarily. Let me quote a passage from William J. Webb and Gordon K. Ostey. Um, their book is called Bloody, Brutal, and Barbaric, Wrestling with Troubled, Troubling War Texts. Here's what they say. In God's ideal world, we beat swords into plowshares. Can I get an amen? In God's ideal world. But in the current cutthroat world of Canaan, or in the cutthroat world of Canaan, a millennium before Christ, God's instructions told them what they had to do to survive if they went to war with the Ammonites. Uh, how they were to treat the survivors, how they were to make a treaty with a foreign people, how they were to stop foreign religions and cultures from taking over their own, how they were to treat someone who committed murder, etc. A lot of what we find in the Bible, especially in the Old Testament, is not ideal. Can I get an amen? At least not ideal when judged from the perspective of the New Testament. It was somewhere between an emergency survival program and an attempt to ameliorate a terrible and traumatic situation. The Old Testament conveys the ruthless realism of God's people trying to survive in the ancient world and dealing with a world that had a particular view of masculinity, kinship, moral duties, and social order. When we read the texts about war, including rhetorical tirades to show hostile tribes no mercy and the permissibility of taking women as captives, we need to imagine this God putting on a hazmat suit and trying to lead Israel through the toxic morass of human evil and taking them incrementally toward a better way of being human. We should read the Old Testament commands as stories about war, knowing that war was for a particular purpose, at a particular time, and in a particular place. But it was not ideal, it was regrettable, it was ugly, but something better was coming. This is hard for us to wrap our minds around. But we must remember, we are, we are reading a story of humanity unfolding. That's a messy story. I mean, why does God allow a lot of things that we read in the Bible? Lot sleeping with his daughters. Why do we allow sacking of communities and taking of the women? Why, in some cases, do they just take them all out? No mercy at all. Why, why, why? 
Some of the questions that we don't want to, or some of the answers that we don't want to give or don't feel are, are good to give are the fact that God is a just God and sometimes he enacts justice through people. And you go, no way, no way. He just took out an entire village. It's still something you have to consider. It's still something you have to wrestle with. But again, we're dealing with a Bible that is complex. And we're asking the question, what's its authority in our lives? Because we know the Bible says it, we believe it. That settles it. It's not a good motto by which to live. Number three, remember that all biblical commands need to be situated in light of the progressive nature of divine revelation, which includes the unique and final authority of Jesus. What do I mean by progressive revelation? I'll explain it. But what I don't mean by progressive revelation is that God gave you some cockamamie idea that is separate from everybody else in the Bible. That's not progressive revelation. That's you had bad chili. Okay, that's not progressive revelation. That's you had a bad teacher telling you that you have the, uh, the inroad with God. No, right? I heard a pastor say or a teacher say this the other day, and I, it bothered me a lot because his first part was awesome. But like most teachers, we take things absurdly too far. His statement was, if you feel that God has spoken to you and it contradicts the Bible, then you need to go back to the drawing board. You did not hear from God. Can I get an amen? Amen. That's absolutely true. But then he said this. If you believe you've heard from God, and it does get confirmed in the Bible, it was unnecessary. So God doesn't talk to his people, I guess. So God is not a relational God who actually cares for you. This is taking it too far. God is talking. God is communing with his people. God didn't write you a book 2,000 years ago and leave you till Jesus returns the second time. God is ministering to his people now. It's beautiful. But listen, it must line up with what he says. He's not a liar. He's not going to contradict himself. And him talking to you is for sure not unnecessary. Okay? So please be listening to what God says. Though we may understand now that hating someone in our hearts is actually the precursor or the beginning to murder, Jesus told us that, we must never forget that the God of the New Testament is the God of the Old Testament too. Meaning that progressive revelation is not to be understood as replacement revelation. Jesus didn't abolish the bits of the Bible that were bad, right, to clean up his image, a God makeover. That didn't happen. And although he does, on several occasions, give a fuller understanding to certain issues, the truth remains the same, or the truth is finally revealed for what it was always intended to be. This is how progressive revelation works. By the way, this isn't just something Jesus does, it's something the Apostle Paul does as well. You guys have heard me talk about Paul's ad hoc interpretation of the Bible. It is downright confusing, quite honestly, uh, especially when we think about what he does in cases like Deuteronomy 25.4, don't muzzle the ox while it treads out the grain, and 1 Timothy 5.18, Moses was always talking about pastors in this occasion. <laughs> really? That's a really strange way to talk about pastors. I mean, I get it now, but right, it's a weird thing. <laughs> Nobody's getting my jokes, it's fine. We have to remember that the purpose of the Bible is not to be uh, a cosmic rule book. Is it a book that contains commands? Yes, it is. 
But it is not just a cosmic rule book, right? The Bible is a story, and stories unfold as they're told. Amen? Even the messy parts. There are several authors in our room today, and they know how important the arc of a, of a storyline is, right? God is the one who created that arc to begin with. <laughs> and he allows it to play out as ugly as it is in human history. Amen? So, very important stuff. Michael F. Bird says this with respect to these kinds of concepts. He says, Jesus, his life, death, and resurrection, his status as Messiah and Lord, his identity as the Son of God, is the hermeneutical key to unlocking Scripture. So what we need to do is we need to see what God was doing and then see Jesus as the fulfillment of it or see Jesus as the interpretation of it or see Jesus as what the answer is to the question. Amen? This is happening all throughout the Bible. Number four, accept that church doctrines, this is going to blow somebody's mind, accept that church doctrines are subject to revision. <gasps> Heaven forbid, Right? And seek God's wisdom on matters of faith and practice. Let's go back to that quote from John Stott from earlier. The hallmark of authentic evangelicalism is not subscription, but submission. That is, it is not whether we subscribe to an impeccable formula about the Bible, but whether we live in practical submission to what the Bible teaches, including including an advanced resolve to submit to whatever it may later be shown to teach. That final line is so important. Advanced resolve to submit to whatever it may later be shown to teach. Our understanding of the Bible and what the Bible teaches is not settled. Yippee. It's not settled. Why would God allow people in the 21st century to weigh in? Who cares? Who cares? But he does. He allows us to wrestle with the text of Scripture. He also allows us to rightly divide it over the, the, uh, over the period of time in which human nature understands it and then loses its meaning. And then it needs to be recovered. This happens throughout church history all the time, right? So we have to make sure that we understand that God is allowing us to understand or rightly divide his word. I know that this feels like a slippery slope, but it's absolutely true. And while this brings us wrong ideas like exhaustive divine determinism or unbiblical views on spiritual gifts or even modern forms of egalitarianism, all of these ideas are nonsense, but they were allowed and God isn't panicking. So why would we panic? Let me tell you why God doesn't panic and why we shouldn't panic. Because there were false teachers in the very first church that were ravaging the world. And just 300 years later, it took over the planet. God is not thwarted by human stupidity. Hallelujah. Right? It is important that that is the case. Should we care about false teachers? Should we care about all kinds of weird ideas that make God into a moral monster? You bet your butt we should. But we should, we should always remember God is still the God of the church. And the scripture says the gates of hell cannot, will not prevail over her. 
They may prevail over people's institutions and ideas and the local body down the street that has to close its doors if you want to consider that the gates of hell prevailing. But the point is, God's church hasn't lost one foot of ground. She's good. And you know who her protector is? The Lord of glory. (laughs) Right? This is why it's so important, in my opinion, not to speak ill of the scriptures and not to speak ill of God's church. In one sense, you're speaking ill of what God breathes. And in the second sense, you're talking about his girl. (laughs) Good luck. That's not a good thing, right? The story of scripture, the story of human life, and the authority of the Bible is a complicated matter. Dunning-Kruger effect. I know everything. And by the end of it, you actually are at the point where you go, wow, this is far more complicated than people understand. We need to embrace that as we go forward in understanding Scripture. And we need to definitely embrace that as we engage with a skeptical culture. Because they think we're crazy for following the Bible. And if you believe that every verse and every page is authoritative equally, I think you're crazy too. Right? We've got to understand what it means to rightly divide it. So how precisely is the Bible an authority? And how do we live under such authority? And is the Bible equally authoritative and therefore prescriptive in all its parts? No. How do we separate God's authority, biblical authority, and the authority of the interpreter? The answer is right hermeneutics and faithful study. If we love our Lord, then we must love his word and strive to obey it with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength. In doing this, we are going to avoid the extremes. On the one hand, brazenly taking a pair of scissors to the parts of the Bible that we don't care for. And on the other hand, living uh, and worshiping as if all the commands in the Bible are equally relevant and applicable to us, which they are not. There are some good reasons that we don't do some of the things in the Bible. Like stoning people for adultery. It's pretty good that we don't do that now. And why we do some things in the Bible that it prohibits prohibits like eating pork. Hallelujah, right? There's a lot to authority, guys. And so when it comes to this, I would encourage you to always remain humble and patient. Uh, and especially when you get into these conversations with the, um, with the skeptics of your life. How many of you, by a show of hands, know that there are skeptics in your world? Like in your personal world. How many of you know this, Right? It's unbelievable, right? If you would have asked God's church in most uh, American settings, especially the Bible Belt, 80 years ago, how many of you know a skeptic? It would have been like three hands maybe in the church raising their hand. Every one of you is raising your hands. Why? Because we live in a skeptical world. And you know what's forcing people further and further into their skepticism? Our stupid answers. It makes people absolutely confused. They go, you believe that, huh? (laughs) Good for you. Right? Good for you. I'm going to step aside from the Bible. I'm going to walk my own path because I think I'm a better person than that. Do you realize that if you weigh that Deuteronomy passage against what most people consider good, they they would conclude they are better than God. Do you know that? What do you do with it? I just I just don't answer a fool. I let the skeptic deal with themselves. That's not what the Bible says. 
no matter what your interpretation of don't answer a fool according to his folly means. We need to be always prepared to give a defense for the faith that we have, for the hope that we have in Christ Jesus. Amen? Now, honest poll, right? How many of you, though, in three weeks of this study, how many of you will honestly admit to me you feel completely overwhelmed? Raise your hand. Now for my response that you don't like. Good. I'm really glad. That doesn't mean I'm going to leave you that way at all, by any stretch of the imagination. I want you to feel overwhelmed. I want you to feel overwhelmed because if the church doesn't feel some sense of urgency for this, we ain't going to do nothing. And the world is going to continue, and those stats are going to continue to go straight off the cliff of belief. I want it to unsettle you, but here's what I'm going to test, try or uh, uh, call you to, and that is, those of you who raised your hands that this is a testing or a trying series, I'm going to invite you to pick up the email that you have or the phone that you have and reach out to me and say, I need some answers on this. I'm struggling with this. What do I do about A, B, C, or D? But if you're not moved enough to get clarity and you're not moved enough to find the answers to these issues... I can assure you, you won't talk to a skeptic well. You probably won't talk to them at all. You'll avoid them like the plague, which is what most Christians do. Guys, the world needs Jesus. Amen? The world needs Jesus. Uh, They need good representatives of Jesus to minister that gospel, and we're supposed to be those representatives. And while we're all arguing about the deck chairs on the Titanic, the world is dying, the ship is sinking, and we're doing nothing. So let's get bothered. Let's get bothered by this. And let's realize that we need to do something about it. Amen?